Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to today's edition of Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, produced in partnership with Chelsea Green Publishing. Chelsea Green, an employee-owned independent publisher, see publishing as a tool for cultural change and ecological stewardship. Their books not only look and feel beautiful, printed on recycled paper with vegetable-based inks, they provide readers with hands-on information on organic food, nature, conservation and the environment, on gardening and ecology, on sustainable economics, progressive politics and farming. One of the actions we are always being encouraged to take as individuals is to change what we eat, less meat, especially red meat, and to switch to a more plant-based diet. This will not only be good for our health, but for the health of the planet, we are told. Fewer emissions from a carrot than a cow. However, this may be far too simplistic, and that global food system is a complex interwoven web of economics, communities, countries and multinationals, in which it might be better to eat a tomato from southern Spain in March, despite its carbon footprint, than one grown in Somerset. Here to help me explore the complexities and conflicting messages around diet and food production are my two guests. Dr. Michael Clark from the Department of Population Health at Oxford University has research interests that include the environment, economics and health impacts of food systems. He uses models to provide quantitative estimates on the current and projected impacts of the food system, as well as the potential benefits of changing those systems. He's also working on expanding the centre's food system model to incorporate biodiversity and economic outcomes in the collaborative project funded by the Wellcome Trust called Livestock, Environment and People, or LEAP as it's known. Mike, hello and welcome. Hi, yes, thanks for having me. My second guest joins us from California, thanks to the wonders of Zoom. Nicolette Hahn-Nyman previously served as a senior attorney for the Waterkeepers Alliance, running its campaign to reform the industrialised production of livestock and poultry. She's an advocate for sustainable food production and improved farm welfare, and is the author of Defending Beef, The Case for Sustainable Meat Production, intriguingly subtitled The Manifesto of an Environmental Lawyer and Vegetarian Turned Cattle Rancher. Welcome, Nicolette, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So after that lengthy introduction, perhaps we should start with some definitions. Mike, I wonder, could you explain to listeners what we actually mean by a food system? Yeah, so when we're talking about food systems, we are thinking about everything that we consume, how it's produced, everything between from when the food leaves the farm to gets and gets to our plate that we then eat. And even beyond that, all the inputs that are needed to produce the food at the farm. So those inputs might be things like energy, it might be oil, fertilizers, pesticides, it could be grains, legumes going into livestock systems, so on. And so one thing that uh, Amanda mentioned earlier before is that right now the food system is really just globally interconnected in the sense that if you're in the UK and the US, a lot of the food that you're eating is not going to be produced in the same country, let alone the same continent. And so what that means is when you're thinking about the food, you can't necessarily assume that it's coming from somewhere near you or from the same country, but it could be coming from halfway across the world. The one important thing to stress too is that in terms of the global environmental context is just to consider the absolute magnitude of the impact that the food system currently has on the environment. So for a few numbers on this, right now the food system emits about one third of global greenhouse gas emissions, occupies about, depending on who you ask, about 40% of all of Earth's land surface. And 
uses at least 70, sometimes upwards of 80% of all of freshwater use. And so food systems are incredibly important to support societies, to support our well-being, support economic systems, so on. But also we're at a point where we need to think about what they're also doing to the environment and figure out how can we meet sustainability targets while also providing food and nutrition and livelihoods for everybody involved. But a food system that's globally interconnected, and as I kind of made that point in my, my introduction, it, because, of the, because it's so complex and there's so many factors involved, the production of a tomato currently in March in southern Spain where it's warm could well be better and more sustainable than having one produced just down the road, say, in the UK, um, because you'd need fuel to heat the greenhouse and et cetera, et cetera. So, so, so just because things are international and are travelling a long way doesn't necessarily make them bad in inverted commas, does it? Yeah, that's actually a very, very good point. And so there's a really good example of this of producing apples in the UK versus apples in New Zealand. And what this group of authors did is they said, if we produce apples in New Zealand, store them and ship them all the way from New Zealand to the UK, what are the environmental implications of consuming that apple versus the environmental implication of consuming an apple that is produced in the UK? And what those authors found is that in certain situations, it's actually more climate friendly to eat the apple that is produced in New Zealand, stored for six months, and then imported halfway across the world than it is to produce the apple that is grown maybe within 100 miles of where you are. Well, that just seems so counterintuitive, and if I may say, so extraordinary, to, particularly when a lot of the narrative around food in the recent years has been about eating local and producing local. But I guess the whole point of this podcast is to talk about things that seem counterintuitive. And, and that's where we must turn to Nicolette, who's, you know, vegetarian no longer, she tells me, turned cattle rancher. But And you've made a very compelling case in your book, Defending Beef, actually saying that beef and rearing cattle and eating beef is nothing like as bad either for us or the planet as we've perhaps been led to believe. Isn't that right? Yeah, well, I think the fundamental point is that the globe in its incredibly long history um, has had, as part of its evolution, um, the ecosystems all over the world include grazing animals and everything from, you know, insects to you know, Cape Buffalo and um, caribou, you know, all over the world, you have animals that consume the naturally occurring vegetation, especially like the grass primarily is what I'm focused on. But, um, and that that's part of how ecosystems function and that the entire health of the planet is connected to these functioning ecosystems. So what humans have done is they have eliminated enormous quantities of the biomass that was once on the earth in the form of wild animals that did that grazing. And the argument that I'm making is that, and my, and my, you know, my background is in biology and law, and now I work as a person directly involved in agriculture. But so I sort of believe in this from all these different perspectives. Um, but it's basically saying we need these grazing animals in order to have properly functioning uh, water systems, uh, land, you know, soil and soil health and biodiversity, starting from, you know, the, the uh, microorganisms in the soil. All of this is all connected. And without the grazing animals, you actually have this kind of like huge absence that is part of a natural healthy functioning of ecosystems. So the point of the Defending Beef book 
it's my second book actually about agriculture and and meat production but the defending beef book is specifically focused on this question of how are we raising cattle and my argument is that there are lots of examples of poor grazing around the world which leads to damage but when it's done well it is not only not harmful it's beneficial and I think that's the key point. So I kind of have learned to summarize, you know, in the sort of bumper sticker version of my book, it's it's not the cow, it's the how. And that's kind of the key message um, that I'm trying to convey. And that's really interesting because we've spent quite a lot of time over the years on the podcast talking about rewilding and um, restoring habitats. And one of the great elements to rewilding, one of the, the, the kind of central arguments is that you need grazing animals to you know disturb the earth you need them to sort of churn it up you need the you know the in the famous example in NEP here in the UK you need the cows to recreate the bison and you need the pigs to recreate the kind of truffling animals and things so you actually need cattle but we're only talking about a limited number aren't we what we're not talking about is that really intensive livestock farming which I think has been the characteristic way of raising cattle and raising all livestock you know cows and pigs over the years in order to increase meat production to increase meat consumption so I think part of your argument is about this is fewer and better both in terms of the livestock per head livestock but also in terms of the consumption is that fair you wouldn't you'd say people should eat less meat I'm not sure. You know, I have to say I started working on this as an environmental lawyer, and that was my profession for several years, focused on as as an environmental attorney, suing people and and, uh, you know, um, dealing with regulatory issues and um, attempting to sort of rein in the excesses and the abuses from the meat industry. Um, and I, I think initially that was exactly my thought that our problem was excess. And but the more I've you know I've now been working on this for almost twenty years, and I think my thinking has evolved quite a bit on that. And I really do feel now we're not it's not so much about numbers; it's really again about the how. And for example, in the United States, we have these huge concentrated operations for raising pigs now. And, you know, I mean, they've existed for you know a couple of decades now, but they're fairly recent in terms of their, you know, their invention. And, you know, you'll have pigs, thousands of, even tens of thousands of pigs in a, a single facility. And that has an incredibly devastating environmental impact. And it's terrible from an animal welfare perspective. But when you look at the total number of pigs that are raised in the United States today, it's almost the same number that we had about 100 years ago in the United States. So the numbers haven't really changed. I know globally, the numbers have gotten larger in pretty much every species. But if you just look, for example, at the United States as a case study about the way animals are raised and meat is produced, I would argue that the way that pigs are raised right now is having a devastating environmental impact, but it's exactly the same number of pigs that we had 100 years ago when I would argue that the environmental impact from pigs was not so negative and in fact was in many cases beneficial. So I think in grazing animals, um, there's a very good case to be made that when you have larger concentrated herds and you manage them well, they can have the most beneficial impact. So I kind of have to push back on this notion that it's about the numbers. I think it's really much more about how they're raised and in what concentration, and most importantly, how they're managed. And especially when it comes to the grazing animals, um, I think the larger numbers can end up having a greater benefit. 
They take up a disproportionate amount of space, though, don't they? There's no question, isn't it? And if you look at it, Mike, from a kind of global sustainable food production point of view, in terms of needing to feed our population, and, and I know the population's reached a kind of stasis point with feeling slightly less at risk of overpopulation, we've still got significant numbers of people going hungry, you know, 700 million undernourished every day. So, so we need to make food production more sustainable and more equitable. So is the answer to have just more herds of cows, or would you say that there's another route to doing that in terms of feeding our global population? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So there are, broadly speaking, three things that are going on here. And so the first two are exactly what Nicolette just mentioned. So the first is, how is the food being produced? The second is, how much is being produced? And the third is, where is that food getting to? And so in terms of how is the food being produced, one thing that Nicolette mentioned is that there's a really large variation in terms of the impacts per amount of food produced given different types of production systems. And so if we're just looking at beef or just looking at wheat or any other food commodity, the most sustainable producers often have one-tenth to one-one-hundredth of the impact of the least sustainable producers. So what that means is that even if you're eating, say, beef, if you're eating wheat, if you're eating dairy, you could be eating a very sustainable type of that product or a much less sustainable type of that product. The limitation that we have right now is because of the lack of transparency in food systems. We don't really know where our wheat or our beef is coming from with the exception of very certain circumstances. And so if we as consumers are trying to make informed decisions on trying to eat that better wheat, trying to eat the better beef, trying to eat the better dairy, we can't really do that right now with the information that we do have. And so that's one lever that definitely can be improved, but with at least from a consumer perspective, we don't really have the information to be able to choose those foods that are more sustainably produced to shift our behavior in response to that information. The second one is how much food is being produced. And so I think a few things that are useful to frame in terms of this context is right now we produce enough calories to support about 10 to 11 billion people compared to a global population of about seven and a half billion people. And if you even go beyond that, Right now, the way agricultural land is currently divided is about 80% of agricultural land is used to produce livestock foods. So that's meat, dairy, and eggs. And that 80% corresponds with about 4 billion hectares of land surface, which is, if you stick it back into the proportion of Earth's land surface, that's about 33% of all terrestrial land is used for livestock production in some way. And so in many cases, that isn't great. In some cases, that isn't inherently bad. And so one thing that I also like to iterate in terms of what Nicolette also mentioned is kind of taking a step back and saying, how much have you modified landscapes through livestock production? And so one important thing to keep in mind is if you look at the current mass of livestock compared to the current mass of wild animals, is that there are about 10 times more livestock than there are wild mammals left. And so what that means right now is that we've done a huge amount of damage because producing that livestock is going to come at the cost of something. And right now it's coming at the cost of land, at the cost of other organisms and other species. So one important thing to consider is not only is the impact of beef higher low or some other food higher low, but what is the counterfactual that we're looking at? So what would the impact be if we're talking about beef production systems and grazing production systems? What would the impact be or what would the ecosystem look like if that was not beef and instead being reconverted back into a more natural landscape. And so it's really hard to answer that question. I don't have the answer, but I think that's also just really important to think about when we're talking about food, because it's really hard to put things into absolutes when you don't consider the product context of 
what things used to look like and what things naturally would be like if we hadn't modified those landscapes. The third one that you just mentioned too is kind of distribution equity of food. And so again, just to iterate this, we produce enough calories to feed between about 10 to 11 billion people. Yet I think right now about a billion people are, are caloric deficient. And so what that means is that there's a really big inequity in access, distribution, affordability of the food that we produce and the food that people are able to consume. And so somehow that needs to be fixed. Again, I don't know how that's going to look like, but that's something that needs to be considered because it isn't just produce more, it isn't just produce different, it isn't just produce better, but it's produce and then distribute in a way that it gets to the people that need it so that there is both adequate food, but also not excess food in other places. And is that what the work of, of LEAP is doing? Is that partly what some of your research is about, trying to, to, to create a more equitable system of distribution? Because that's a huge gap, you know, enough calories for 11 billion, but there's only, only 7 billion of us. So either some people are eating way too many, and we know that is the case because we have this strange you know, dichotomy in the world. I mean, we have a huge number of people who are undernourished and then a very serious obesity problem. Or is it because a lot's being wasted in the system? So there's some distribution issues in there as well, as, as well as some production issues, aren't there, in terms of actually getting the right calories to the right people? Yeah. So in terms of that, I think there are two to three different things going on. So right now, about 33% of all food production is thrown away in some way. And so it might be from rotting on an apple tree because the apple hasn't been picked fast enough. It might be the apple's rotting in somebody's fridge because they forgot about it and it's tucked behind their bag of salad. So it's a combination of throwing food away it's a combination of how much food is actually needed to produce certain livestock products. And so if you look at the total number of calories needed to produce the diets that are consumed by somebody that is, or the average person that's in the US or the UK, we're eating maybe 2,500 calories, maybe 3,000 calories on average, but we need about 12,000 to 15,000 calories to produce those 2,500 calories. And so there's also that type of, I wouldn't necessarily call it inefficiency, but there's also that aspect to consider that a lot of food is being used to uh, produce foods that we don't directly eat, which means that we have to produce a lot more than what we actually do need to eat. And then I think the third part too is uh, we're producing a lot, but we're also producing from, from a healthy perspective, we're also producing a lot of the wrong types of food. And so a good way of putting this is most countries have recommendations on fruit and veg. And to meet those recommendations, you have to produce enough food, enough fruit and veg to get to the people. Most countries don't actually produce enough fruit and veg to meet those dietary recommendations. And so even if there are enough calories, it doesn't mean that there are enough fruits, there are enough veg, there are enough lentils and pulses and nuts to actually meet those dietary guidelines that the, that the WHO puts out, that countries put out, and so on. Mike, what are they producing instead? I mean, are they just producing the wrong kind of food? Or, are, you know, those calories are going in to produce livestock, so growing grain to feed to, to animals or why, why aren't we producing the right kinds of foods that we need both for a healthy lifestyle and also for an efficient system? Also a fantastic question. So I think there are two questions that you just asked. Uh, so the first is what are we producing instead? And so right now it is a lot of cereals and a lot of oil crops and legumes. So oil crops are things like uh, rapeseed, mustard, palm oil, things that are converted into oils and relatively fatty. But if we just hone into cereals right now, if I remember correctly, about 40% of the world's cereal production is devoted to producing livestock. And so, again, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's 
inefficient. It could be more efficient if people were to eat that food instead. But I think that's also just a, a choice in terms of economies, in terms of what people want to eat, being reflected in terms of how we allocate food to produce livestock, as opposed to allocating food to produce the people that may not have enough of it. The second question that you asked uh, is much more complicated, and that is, why do we do this? And I think part of it is uh, economic incentives may not be there in some cases. So uh, we can talk about the US or the UK or most other relatively high income countries is that there are going to be subsidy programs supporting production of, in the US, it's going to be maize and soybean. In other countries, it might be sugar beets. But there's going to be these economic incentives for farmers to produce food that may not be healthy, may not be sustainable. And so as long as those are there, it's going to be difficult for both producers to change what they're producing because they may not earn as much money if they shift to something different. But that lowered production cost also reflects into the cost of foods that people purchase. And so not only do those incentives make it difficult and more difficult for producers to shift to lower impact systems to healthier foods, to foods that we might need more of and away from foods that we need less of, but it also makes it difficult for consumers to actually purchase those foods that are both healthy and sustainable because they may be more expensive than things like your bag of crisps. Well, and there's that strange, also just an added twist. I don't think Michael mentioned this, but um, in the U.S. at least, a, 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 almost a third of the corn goes into biofuels, which are, you know, everybody who studies this agrees they're incredibly inefficient, but it has to do with the politics of, you know, farm um, constituencies and, you know, subsidies. And so you actually have a huge portion of the, you know, the grain that's being produced, um, not even going into food at all. Um, there's a lot of, you know, focus on the inefficiency of grain going into livestock. And I agree with a lot of those concerns, but then you also have a, a major chunk of it not even going into food. And presumably the cows on your ranch, they're not grain fed largely, they're grazing, you said. We do not use grain at all. That's correct. Right. Okay. So does that make them more expensive for the end consumer or, or cheaper? Yes. I mean, because the cost of land is your main cost and the whole point of beginning to feed grain. And it, actually, it's an ancient practice to feed some you know, grain to livestock to fatten them. And, you know, it's talked about in the Bible, for example, quite a bit. Um, you do that in order to get the animal to a, a condition for slaughter, either faster or at a, you know, at a time of year when you don't have the alternative. Um, usually it's a combination of considerations. In the U.S., grain feeding became common largely to sort of flatten out the seasons of, you know, you have a, a tremendous seasonality with grazing animals. And that that made the, the meat available for a broader period of time. And especially the slaughterhouses were, you know, crowded all of a sudden for a brief period of time in the year. And then essentially unused for the rest of the year. So it was an attempt to sort of smooth that out. Um, but you know, I'm what I'm a lot of what I'm arguing in my defending beef book as well is that we need to return the grazing animals to grass, and that that's not just for beef cattle, but also for dairy cattle and all of the animals that are you know that can be raised on entirely on grass, such as sheep and you know yaks. I mean, you have a, a variety of different types of grazing animals that can not just survive but thrive entirely on grass, and. Part of the idea is that you're utilizing land better um, by having animals grazing it. Because when, uh, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, when you're grazing well, you actually have ecological benefits. The soil holds 
more water. Um, the soil is more biologically diverse. It's basically just more vibrant. There's more life in the soil when you have good grazing on it versus no grazing activity, or especially compared to crop production, which is, you know, it's sort of inherently very destructive to land and to soil and to all of the, you know, ecological life below ground. So, yes, I think that, you know, the, the role of the grazing animal should be to utilize and to even improve that vegetated land that covers much of the globe. Okay, but by definition, there'll only be so much space for them. So if our meat production has gone down a very intensive route, which is, I think, probably wrong, wrong for the animals and wrong for us, I suspect, because there's an awful lot of additives going into that system. The end production of a system like yours would be that, you know, the meat would be more expensive. So would, would the argument be that we then eat less of it, but it's better quality, so we eat less meat because that's generally better for us? We have to eat less because it's we can't afford it, or, or we just say this is a premium product and only certain people will be able to eat this. No, I mean, okay, because you do talk about meat and meat and health in your book as well, don't you? Because you know the argument beef is bad for your health, and I think you scotch that pretty, no pun intended, pretty clearly. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that whole. In fact, I heard an, a wonderful presentation by Professor Michael Lee when I was at in the UK um, in July a year and a half ago about this whole question of how we look at um, the ecological impact of animal-based foods based on how much nourishment they provide. And I think that's an incredibly important point. And he sort of does the calculations on the, that and shows that the sort of ecological impact of animal-based foods is radically different when you consider how much nourishment they provide versus just you know pounds. Um, and they provide a lot of nourishment that is difficult to get elsewhere, um, you know, this sort of perfect food, because it has not just protein, which is often discussed a lot when you talk about animal-based foods, but a whole host of uh, essential Im amino acids in conjunction with that food that makes the food um, optimal from a nutritional standpoint. Um, but to go back to the point of why why is well-raised meat more expensive, um, a lot of it when it comes to grazing animals really is about how long the animal is alive. Mm -hmm. So you have the cost of land, and especially like I'm in California and the land is incredibly expensive here. So you have you know, just the land itself is your main, the main thing that you're um, having to pay for. And, um, and not, it's not just that you have the animal alive longer, and therefore, you have to have more labor involved and so forth. But whenever you have an animal alive, you also have the risk of death of that animal. So if it's, a you know, alive for one year, that's a certain amount of risk of death, if, it, you know, premature death from, you know, an illness or an injury or something. Or, or a, a predator. So you have a one year versus two year versus three year. Our cattle are um, about two and a half years old when they go to slaughter because we aim not just to raise them entirely on grass, but we also aim to have an animal that is not um, thin. You know, we want an animal that has, that is full flesh and is mature. So we raise them on grass and we only slaughter them seasonally when they are as someone would do when they're hunting, we're seeking um, an animal that provides fat and flesh. And from that, you get optimal nutrition and optimal flavor. But I guess the message is that, that as a result, you'll be paying a premium, but it's worth it because the quality is better. It's higher in omegas. It's lower in the run kind of fats. It's, it's better for you as a person, but it's not going to be an everyday 
item because it's more expensive, but well, then we, we perhaps shouldn't be eating meat every day. Maybe we, that's part of Mike's point, isn't it? We need that balanced art and the things that we don't eat. We're not growing enough of the other things that we should be eating. Well, there's a lot of artificial lowering of costs in the food system. And, and that's true for meat and for everything. So, you know, there's a cheapness to the food that has come, that people have come to expect. I mean, in, in the United States, for example, people pay less than 10% of their income right now on average for food. And just in the mid 20th century, they paid about 25 to 30% of their income. So it's been a radical shift in what we expect to pay for food. But, you know, I, I, I've talked about this in a lot of things I've written. You can get very nutrient dense animal based foods at a much lower cost than people are you know, generally think simply by seeking out, for example, in meat, the lesser used cuts, which are often things that take a little bit more time to cook or, you know, a little bit more um, knowledge, which is unfortunate. We've sort of lost our knowledge about cooking at the same time that we're facing these health crises. And I don't think these things are not related. I think they are related. So I think, you know, one of the, my, my husband is really an expert in meat. And he always says that a lot of the most delicious and most nutrient dense parts of the animal are things that are cheap. That are, that are the cheapest cuts. And so, you know, I, I think a lot I think, of chefs would agree with him. <laughs> yes. In fact, when you go to some of the fanciest restaurants in the United States, like Chez Panisse in the Bay Area here, you know, you will get some of those slow cooked, braised, very delicious fatty meats as a center of the plate item. And, you know, it'll be incredibly delicious and you'll pay a lot of money for it. <laughs> but, it, but, it but it doesn't have to, you know, if you cook it yourself yeah. at home, it can be one of the most yeah. economical cuts of meat. So I'd like to circle back to kind of two to three different things. Uh, one thing that Nicolette mentioned is the impacts per nutritional unit. So that could be protein, it could be amino acids, it could be iron and vitamin B12. Um, kind of two or three subpoints on this. The first is that we eat different foods for very different reasons. And so ranking all foods on an impact per amount of protein basis is kind of silly in essence, because if you're eating a salad or lettuce, you're not eating that lettuce for its protein content. And to put this in even, even more absurd terms, to get your uh, daily protein requirement of about 40 to 50 grams per person from just lettuce, you'll be eating something like 10 kilograms of it, if I remember correctly. And so essentially what I'm trying to say is if you're talking about like beef to poultry to legumes to pulses to things that are protein rich and even for the protein, it makes sense to make that comparison. But the second you're doing it from like beef to lettuce or fruits and other vegetables probably doesn't make the most amount of sense. Yeah, but just the, to clarify, the uh, the nutritional analysis I was talking about is not strictly based on um, protein. That's one of the, I don't know if you've looked at the work that I'm referring to, but it's a more um, holistic look at nutritional value. So if you have, are not familiar with that, um, that rating system, it would be worth your time to look. Is it from Adam Drinowski by chance? No, Dr. Michael Lee. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so we're getting technical here, guys. Now, just just for yeah, the benefit no, of the, the, the listeners here. I mean, I suppose I'm just trying to probe my way into this. So, so Mike, I think you're saying that we need to compare like with like. So we need to compare protein with animal-based protein with non-animal-based protein. And we all know you can get protein from non-animal sources, which is why it's perfectly easy to be a healthy vegetarian. And, you know, Nicolette was a vegetarian for a very long time, um, you know, and is a very healthy person, I think. So so, so you don't need the meat. So it's, it, we shouldn't make false comparisons. That's really, really important. But I think what we're talking about is this wider element of sustainability, aren't we, as well? So if this is a sustainable method of food production, it's possibly a sustainable method of 
some parts of our needs in food production, but certainly not all of them. But I don't think we're arguing that it's all of them, is it? We're not saying eat meat three times a day and only eat meat, are we? We're saying that meat is part of a wider balanced diet. And if it's produced in a way that's sustainable and healthy, you know, that's kind of okay. Sorry, using a sort of shorthand here, but that's all right, isn't it? But the problem is bigger than that, isn't it? The problem is about us feeding ourselves and our and our world in a way that's sustainable and inclusive, because I think there'll be a lot of people, even though, you know, our balance of our, our, our monthly income has shifted away from spending 25% on food down to 10%, there are still a lot of people for whom a product like Nicolette's would be premium and out of their reach. And therefore, they're destined to eat stuff that isn't as well managed and as well sourced. Yeah. And so I think one sub point to that that is actually really, really interesting is kind of the context specific nature of these questions and these issues. And so, one thing, Nicolette, sorry if I'm putting words in your mouth, one thing that sounds like we both agree on is that concentrated feeding operations are probably not sustainable. They're probably not ethical. They're probably not good for animal welfare. So, what that means is <laughs> probably shouldn't be doing those in the quantities that we mm-hmm. currently are, which means we have to look at other avenues, other options to producing, in this case, it would be meat. And so in the context of cattle and other ruminant production systems is that this kind of comes to grazing grass-fed systems. And I think one point <laughs> that I'd like to make is if you take a historical perspective on this, there used to be things like bison, there used to be a lot of antelope, a lot of other large grazers that ate the grass in the US, in the UK, in Europe, and a lot of other places, those are no longer there because we've killed them. Mm. And so what that means is that those grassland systems that used to have and used to function very well with large animals on them no longer have those large animals, which means in some sense that there is kind of a space for grazing from cows, from buffalo, from other livestock systems to replace the ecological role that those large animals used to fulfill. And so I think the other thing too with that is that doesn't mean that grazing is always good, but it can be an important part of functioning ecosystems. And in terms of the sustainability and broader societal context of this is especially in terms of cattle and beef, so beef and dairy. In many lower income countries and many places that don't have access to markets or access to other foods is that cattle essentially act as, we can call it a bank of sorts, but it's kind of a fail safe in case people can't get food from something else. Cows are there because they live on low quality land. They can produce milk, they can produce beef in places where it may not be possible to grow sorghum or maize or potatoes. And so that's really, really important to consider because again, it's very context specific. It only happens in certain places, but in those places, having cows is very fundamental to the economic livelihoods, the well being of people. In other places, not so much. And so We kind of, when we're talking about this, it's easy to talk about global norms, country norms, and make generalizations on this, but you also have to think about those people that fundamentally rely on certain foods or fundamentally don't rely on certain foods to really kind of unpack these complex issues. And also beyond that, not only unpack the complex issues, but also find solutions that make sense for those locations. Yeah, it's it's hugely complex and it's also interconnected, isn't it? So we're not talking about, if we were just talking about just the states, then then it would be one conversation, but we're not. We're talking about the world and we're talking about the interrelationship between all of those countries and those different population needs. And we haven't even begun to touch on the supermarkets. I think that might be a whole other conversation in a second podcast, because your point, Nicolette, about the price that we're prepared to pay for food and the amount of money we're prepared to spend and the driving down of food prices for which the big chains and supermarket chains have been certainly a key instrument in, if not only responsible for is is another whole conversation because we know there's no such thing as cheap food really it just means someone somewhere is taking the hit 
Um, I just think it, I just wanted to touch on, and we're running out of time, but Nicola, I just wanted to touch on your health argument because you do make quite a compelling case towards the end of the book about, about you know, scotching that myth that beef is bad for you and beef is actually a healthy, you know, what's the matter with beef? This is one of your chapters. So, so it is actually quite a healthy food, isn't it, in some ways? Yeah, well, I think the key point there, and again, you know, having worked on this issue for the last 20 years, my thinking has has evolved a lot. And um, I started working on this as a vegetarian, and a lot of my, you know, life has been as a vegetarian. And my assumption going into this work was always that sort of the less uh, meat and the last animal-based foods people eat, the better. <laughs> and that from a health standpoint, that would be an improvement. And I've changed my thinking about that a lot because when you really, again, sort of specifically, my work has mostly focused on the United States. When you look at what people are eating in the United States now and how that has changed over the last several decades, what's really happened has not been that people have increased their meat consumption. In fact, they've dramatically lowered their red meat consumption in the US and even whole egg consumption has gone down, whole milk consumption has gone down, all these things have gone down. At the same time that we've had a tremendous increase in a lot of health problems, diet-related health problems, especially obesity and all of the, the metabolic diseases that, you know, everything from high blood pressure and strokes and heart disease, everything. So what I really argue, you know, my key point and what I really believe is that we've shifted to very processed industrialized foods. We eat very little food right now in the, you know, the sort of the bulk of the American diet is, and in Western countries around the world, is, is we don't eat a lot of real whole foods anymore. And we eat a tremendous amount of convenience food, processed food, things that are really re remote from what they would have looked like in their sort of natural state. And the, the key point is that meat is one of those whole real foods. And so it isn't that you have to eat a ton of meat or you have to, you know, even necessarily eat it at all. But the idea that meat is bad for you is really not supported by the evidence, as I kind of go through in a lot of detail in the book. And actually, I think it is a very healthful food. Um, and so I'm sort of trying to rehabilitate, you know, the, the reputation of meat on the health side. But I also think, you know, to, to go, I don't, I don't know if you want to hear this or not, but I'll just tell you quickly, the reason I started eating meat again myself is because I realized as I was, you know, I had crossed the age of 50 and it was very important to me that I maintain healthy muscles and bones, which are very difficult for women to maintain as they age. And so I decided in order from my, you know, my knowledge and belief is that I will age better if I include some meat in my diet. And that's why I started eating meat again. That's really interesting for a long-term vegetarian to say that's really fascinating. Thank you both. It's such a fascinating discussion and we could go on for hours, but we probably shouldn't for the sake of our <laughs> listeners. But I would recommend to listeners that you, you visit the LEAP website on the Oxford School. Well, you can just go to the Oxford University and search LEAP or it's on the Oxford Martin School part of the university's website. It's really interesting. And there's some really good case studies there and some fantastic little videos as well, which I very much enjoyed. So it's definitely worth a visit. And uh, Michael, must have you back to talk about some of these complex systems, because I think this is a debate and a conversation that's going to run and run. And obviously, as we run up to COP, talking about sustainable food and sustainable food production and, and that bigger whole argument that we didn't have time to get into around the economics of all of this is fascinating. So thank you both so much for your time, Mike and Nicolette, for joining us. Defending Beef, it's out, Chelsea Green. You can find it on Chelsea Green's website or you can order it as I did on thehive.com, which is the independent bookstore. So go there rather than Amazon. A huge thank you to my guests, 
for being here today. And thank you, listeners. You can catch up on other episodes of Planet Pod via your podcast app or from theplanetpod.com. And if you felt like joining us on our patron scheme, we'd very much welcome you along. Uh, so thank you to my guests and goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.